Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Memorial Heights Baptist Church podcast. We are so glad you are joining us midweek. Today's message was given by Pastor DJ Ritchie during our Sunday evening service on September 6th, 2020, and is a continuation in his Galatian series. We want to encourage you to join us in person at one or all of our services. Our doors are open Sunday mornings at 1030, Sunday nights at 7 o'clock, and Wednesdays at 645. If you have not yet subscribed, please do. And when you do, you'll receive a notification each time we post a new message, and we'll always be up to date. We hope this message would be an encouragement to you as you follow Jesus. So grab your Bible, open your ears, and let's get into it. One of the greatest evidences of the gospel is a transformed life. Now, if you are saved, you have a transformed life. Sometimes that transformation is radical. Sometimes it's visible immediately. Uh, My brother-in-law is a testimony to that truth. Uh, Gigi's brother, one of her brothers, Jimmy, was radically saved. He was not at all living a Christian life. He was living quite the opposite. But his mother was faithfully praying for him, talking to him, encouraging him to read his Bible. And in order to silence his mother, to pacify his mother, he would read his Bible. And when she'd ask him, have you read your Bible? He would say, yes, yes, mother, I I read my Bible. But as he was reading his Bible, the Bible was reading him. And he fell under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and he recognized his sin. He recognized that Jesus Christ is the only salvation, that he died for our sins, that he rose again, that he offers us that forgiveness to be received simply by God's grace through faith. And he called upon the name of the Lord. He was radically saved. And in Jimmy's life, that change was obvious immediately. So much so that my wife wanted to know what he had that she didn't have. My wife uh, grew up in uh, traditional Orthodox, Coptic uh, Orthodox church and uh, went to Catholic school as a little girl. And she thought that she was a Christian. She certainly believed in God. She certainly believed in the Bible, but she had never really truly understood the gospel of Jesus Christ. But when she saw the testimony of her brother and the transformation in his life, she was, she was interested. She was curious. She wanted to know what Jimmy had that she didn't have, and so she began uh, to go to a different church, and she heard the gospel, and she responded by faith, and, and the whole family has been impacted by that uh, radical transformation in testimony. Now, sometimes that radical salvation isn't that immediate. Uh, Butch and I were talking before the service, and, and I know many of you, most of you have heard Butch's testimony more often than I have. For Butch, it took some other things after he, he became a Christian, that God brought some other things into his life that uh, were, were at work uh, in his life for God to bring that radical transformation. Some of us were saved as children. Uh, we weren't, uh, we might have been called little uh, sons of thunder or daughters of thunder, <laughs> when we were kids, but we weren't like literally uh, criminals or literally wicked in, in the extreme uh, as, as children. And so maybe that radical transformation is, is, uh, is not as dramatic, but there should be the testimony of a transformed life. 
We should have a testimony. Your, your testimony doesn't need to be dramatic. It doesn't uh, need to uh, be movie-worthy, but it should be uh, evident in your life. And it's one of the greatest evidences of the gospel. Now, as we'll see tonight as we go to Galatians chapter 1, turn with me back to the book of Galatians, uh, Galatians chapter 1. We'll see that it takes more than a transformed life. A, a transformed life is not going to prove to somebody by itself that the gospel is true. But what it will do is it will earn you an audience. What it does prove is that you believe what you're saying. G. Campbell Morgan, in his book on preaching, uh, records this story. He wrote, There is a tale told of that great English actor, McCready. An eminent preacher once said to him, I wish you would explain to me something. Well, what is it? I don't know that I can explain anything to a preacher. I don't know how to take that, actually, but uh, that's what McCready said. And the preacher said, what is the reason for the difference between you and me? You are appearing before crowds night after night with fiction. And the crowds come wherever you go. I am preaching the essential and unchangeable truth, and I am not getting any crowd at all. McCready's answer was this. This is quite simple. I can tell you the difference between us. I present my fiction as though it were truth. You present your truth as though it were fiction. Is that true of my life? Do I present the truth of the gospel to other people as if it were just fiction? Do I say one thing and live a different way? Or am I visibly altered by the message I claim to believe? If people really believe that I believe what I'm saying, and that my life has been changed because of it, at the very least, it should earn me an audience. It should give me an opportunity to share Christ. By itself, it will not change people, as we'll see, but oftentimes that's what God uses. Some of you here are here tonight because of a transformed life, because you saw Christ at work in somebody else's life. Maybe it was a spouse, a parent. Maybe it was a best friend, a brother, a sister. And you were opened to hearing what they had to say because of the life that they live. Paul is going to share with us his story, his testimony, and the stripes on Paul's back and the trials that he went through proved to everyone, at the very least, Paul believed what he said he believed, that Paul practiced what he preached. And again, it certainly didn't convince everybody that Paul heard, but it gave him the opportunity of an audience. Now, the book of Galatians, as we've seen over the last few weeks together, uh, the theme is living the resurrected life. It's living out the gospel. And what does that mean? It means living as, a, as if the truths of the gospel are actual truths. Living in response to the truths that we say we believe. If we really believe that Jesus is God then we should obey His commandments. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord? You don't, know, you don't do the things I tell you to do. If we really believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven, which, by the way, is essential to actually being saved, to actually responding to the gospel, to understand that Jesus is the Christ, He is the anointed one, He is the only way to God. And if we really believe that, are we sharing Him that way? 
Are we getting that message to people? If we really believe in the empty tomb and we really believe that we have new life, then why are we still living in our tombs? If the chains have fallen off, why are we still wearing them like jewelry as we go uh, about our day? Living the resurrected life. And uh, as I've uh, told you and as we'll see over the course of this study, Lord willing, uh, that this book falls into four major categories. The first one, favor, which is another word for grace, the Greek word for grace. It's the Greek word that's translated grace in our English Bibles means favor. And the theme here is who am I trying to please? As we go through this book, we'll look at the themes of faith, of freedom and fruit, but favor is how we get saved. It's God's grace that saves us. It's not our works. It's not our goodness. It's not any hoops that God has set up that we have to jump through. It's not a, an obstacle course that God wants us to run. It is by God's grace, and we can only receive that grace through faith. And so the question that we ask is, who am I trying to please with my Christian life? If it's all about grace, and that grace comes from God, then is he the one that I'm trying to please? Uh, in the first five verses, as Paul is establishing the essentials of the gospel, he defines what the gospel is, and, and we saw that he defines it essentially as who Jesus is, the raised Lord and Christ. What Jesus did, he gave himself for our sins, and why he did it. He did it to deliver us, present tense, from the present evil world that we live in. Salvation is something we receive here and now. It's not something that we work towards. It's not something that we're trying to earn. It is something that we receive by grace through faith. And then last week we looked at verses 6 through 10 of chapter 1, defending the gospel. We talked about the very real and present danger of false gospels, alterations of this very simple gospel, additions to it, subtractions from it. And today we'll look at the transformation of Paul's testimony. Now, we're going to spend three weeks on Paul's testimony. Uh, Paul's going to begin his testimony here. He's going to run it into uh, the end of chapter 2. And so we're going, to, we're going to look at this in three different parts, but I'm calling this the transformation from man-pleaser to God-pleaser because that's really Paul's point. Who are you living to please? Let me show you what I used to be like. I used to be all about pleasing men, all about impressing others. Now let me show you why I live a different way. Let me give you my testimony. And Paul's testimony was a man of radical transformation, of radical salvation. I'm quite certain you're not going to have the same salvation experience as Paul. I certainly did not have the same salvation experience as Paul. But as we'll see, the salvation experience as Paul was not given to us as a model for how God saves people, but it was given to us uh, as a way to validate the message and validate the messenger because this is a radical message for radical transformation. So let's begin to look at this God-pleaser. Let's begin to look at Paul's conversion, and let's look at the transforming power of the gospel that we all claim to believe, and hopefully we all do believe. But do we believe, believe? Do we live this gospel? And so let me remind you of the two critical questions that we finished last week with. Who are you trying to persuade? 
And who are you trying to please? Look with me at verse 10 again of Galatians chapter 1. Paul writes, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Now what follows after this statement, after these two questions, is Paul's answering this question in his own life. Answering these questions. But we each have to answer these questions. Who am I trying to? to please with my life? Who am I living to persuade? Because as I said last week, we're either preaching the gospel of Christ, the true gospel, the one true gospel, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the sinless sacrifice for our sins, that He died on the cross, shed His blood for our sins, that He paid the price for our sins, that He rose again from the dead, the empty tomb is the evidence, the literally physically empty tomb is the evidence of the Father's accepting of Christ's sacrifice for our sins, which is what really the book of Hebrews is about. Are we using that gospel to try to persuade men to turn from their sin and turn to the only way they can be forgiven in order to please the one who saved us? Or are we doing what many pulpits in America are doing today, many pulpits around the world? Are we using a gospel of man to please men, to be popular, to be accepted, and trying to persuade God. God, why don't you let other people in to your heaven who haven't trusted in Christ, who don't really believe Jesus is the Son of God, who don't really believe that Jesus was a sinless sacrifice, who don't really believe that Jesus died for our sins. Why don't you let those people into heaven too? I mean, they're pretty good people. Who are you, God, to tell them that they're not good enough to, to come and live in your house and they're not good enough for you to adopt them into your family? Well, friend, we're, none of us are good enough. That's the whole point of the gospel. The, the gospel is that Jesus Christ is giving us his righteousness, that we are legally credited the righteousness of Christ. That's God's grace. That's God's favor. It's not God owing anything to anyone. It is all God's grace. But just please understand that anyone that is preaching a gospel to please people is really trying to persuade God to discard the precious blood of Jesus Christ which was shed for the sins of the world. As we said last week, God-pleasers will defend the gospel at regardless of the cost, regardless of what people think of us, regardless of how many friends we lose. I mean, Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring a sword. I'm going to divide families. Now, he will eventually come as the Prince of Peace and will bring literal peace and will establish literal peace on the earth. But in his first coming, Jesus said, I, I came to bring a sword. I'm, I'm going to bring division in families. I'm going to bring division between parents and their children because you're going to have to make a choice whether you really believe the gospel or whether you just believe in being accepted by the people you happen to be around at the time. Let me re remind you how Jesus himself defined the gospel after his resurrection. Luke chapter 24, when he appeared to the disciples in the up upper room, he said unto them, thus it is written, uh, thus it behooved. Actually, I, I believe this was probably given as part of the great commission, uh, but whether it happened in the upper room or, or at the mount in uh, uh, Galilee, uh, this is true regardless of where Jesus said it. 
He said, thus it is written, thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Ye are witnesses of these things. That is the gospel as defined by the resurrected Son of God. So uh, beware in any way trying to change or alter that gospel. Now, Paul goes on from establishing the parameters of the subject, right? These are the two questions I'm going to answer. This is how I've answered it in my life. This is how I've answered who I cho- I've chosen to please and who I've chosen to persuade. And so Paul then turns in verses 11 and 12, and he talks about this transforming message that he was entrusted with and, friends, that we are entrusted with. Listen to what he says in verses 11 and 12. But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now let's stop here and just say that, that Paul is affirming, in these two verses, he's affirming the authority of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's affirming the authority of the one true gospel. And he's telling us two things in these verses, at least two things. Two things I want to highlight for you tonight. Number one, the gospel must be preached, not just lived. Now, the book is about living the gospel. That's the, that's the overall theme of the book. But Paul wants to make sure we understand at the very beginning, yes, you have to live it, but you also have to preach it. I told you a few months ago, one of the dumbest quotes that has ever been popularized in the church. Uh, It was very popular when I was in high school. I know that's been a long time ago, but I still hear it every once in a while. It's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi who said, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. If necessary, use words. Now, what he was trying to say is we should live the gospel, and in that I agree. Not sure of his theology entirely, so that's the subject for another time, but friend, you're going to have to preach the gospel. The words that Paul uses, the words that Peter uses, the words that are used in our New Testament for the proclamation of the gospel are words that indicate in the Greek language that you're going to have to use your voice. You're going to have to speak it. You're going to have to make it clear. You say, what if I write it out? Well, yes, if you write it out for somebody, if you email it to somebody, if you put it on a a Facebook post for somebody, but it's going to have to be enunciated. It's going to have to be explained. Nobody's going to get saved just by osmosis of being in your life, of working with you, uh, and say, man, I, I... I really like how they live their life. I, I'm, all of a sudden, I'm saved too. And, and the reason you need to understand that is because there are people who think they're saved because of that. There are people who think that that's how they got saved. I talked to a girl one time and was trying. This was uh, before I met Gigi, and it was somebody that I, else that I had met online before I met Gigi. And we were talking on the phone, and I was trying to get to know her. And I'd been on, uh, Gigi and I met on eHarmony. I think you guys, uh, I've told you that, got, that a couple times before. And so I had learned after being on eHarmony for a few years that um, just because people say they're Christians, just because girls say they're Christians doesn't mean they have any clue what that means. And so very early in my conversations with girls, I started to try to get their testimony out of them to see if they really knew if they really knew what the gospel is. And I was talking to this one girl, and uh, I was... Uh, interested in her and until 
uh, she shared her testimony with me. And it was so mushy and, and, and ambiguous and, well, how did you get saved? Well, I was at this retreat and, and the preacher gave an invitation and, and I just felt this emotion come over me and, and everybody was going forward and, and, and I went forward with them. And I mean, this, is, this was her testimony. This was as, this was as deep as it got. I had this feeling, everybody was going forward, I went with them, and I decided I was going to become a Christian too. Nothing about Jesus, nothing about I, I needed to deal with my sin, nothing about I was convicted. Uh, that, that was not a, testimony, a gospel testimony. That, that was not a gospel testimony, and, and uh, that, that relationship, thankfully, did not uh, last uh, beyond uh, another call. I was trying to share the gospel with her, and she didn't even really understand what I was trying to do. I mean, she didn't really even understand that I, didn't un- that I didn't think she was saved as I was trying to, well, you know, well, do you understand about Jesus? And uh, she, just didn't, she just didn't get it, and, and uh, a lot of people don't get it. That's why it needs to be preached. It needs to be preached, not just lived. Please understand that when we talk about the Bible, we need to proclaim it with authority. We need to teach it with certainty because the Bible, the gospel is propositional truth. That means it's factual. It's something you can say is true or false. It's propositional. It's not symbolic. It's not a story. Now, of course, it is a story. It's a historical story. But it's not some kind of symbolic story. And one of the things that's happening in the church today is people are trying to sneak this idea in that the Bible is an Eastern book, and because the Bible was written thousands of years ago in an Eastern context, that means that it's not really propositional. It's not really true truth. It's, it's, uh, it's story, and it's just, it's just really about this, the meaning behind the stories. And, and you don't have to really believe that Jesus actually died and that he actually rose again. Uh, friend, that is a lie from the devil. The Old Testament says to beware of things from the East, to beware of the religions of the East, which are very symbolic and story. The Bible is not that at all. The Bible is objective. It's not subjective. The Bible is factual. It's not abstract. The gospel, it's the solution. It's not a mystery. Now, there are mysteries to it. Absolutely. There are mysteries of God. Moses wrote that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but these things have been revealed, and they belong to us because God has revealed them to us. And so the things that are revealed are not mysteries. They can be received or rejected. They can be believed or rejected. The gospel is not a question. It is the answer to the question. And I remember there was a a teacher uh, who, when he first came onto the scene, uh, was very popular, and uh, I, we used some of his videos at our church, and, and I thought he was, uh, he was very intellectual, and, and I thought he was uh, a, an interesting guy, and, and then uh, eventually, over the years, as he began to reveal more and more of his actual doctrine in his writings and in his teachings, I realized, oh, this guy's a wolf. I mean, this guy is a full-blown heretic. He is preaching a false gospel that everybody eventually gets to heaven. And uh, I had to wash my hands of him. But that's why I'm so passionate about this because I've, listen, I've listened to some of these guys. I've read some of their books and I didn't get it at first. I didn't see the heresy at first because Satan is very, very good at what he does. He's very deceptive. 
he puts in a lot of truth with just enough poison, just enough lie to pervert the gospel, to distort the gospel. And this particular author, teacher that I'm talking about, as I was reading one of his books, I noticed he was, he was asking a lot of questions in his book, but he wasn't given the answer. It's okay to ask the questions. It's okay to get people to ask the questions. But the answer is Jesus Christ. The answer is the gospel. The answer is you can be forgiven of your sins. And if you aren't forgiven of your sins, there is only God's wrath that's waiting for you. But God, because of his great love for you, has sent Jesus Christ. And Christ absorbed the wrath of God for you, paid your sin debt for you. And he has risen from the dead victorious. And you can be forgiven. But you must call upon the name of the Lord to be saved, Romans chapter 10 says. The gospel must be preached. Teach it with certainty. Preach it with authority. Peter said uh, in 1 Peter chapter 4 that those of us who have a teaching gift must proclaim and teach the oracles of God. That we need to stick to the Word of God when we preach and we need to proclaim it as the oracles of God. This is God's authority. This is not, uh, I don't preach authoritatively because of my opinion, but because this is God's Word. And so we need to teach it with certainty. The gospel must be preached. Number two, the gospel is Christ's revelation, not man's creation. Paul says, I didn't get this from man. I got this as the direct revelation from God. Paul did not speak his truth, which is a popular phrase today. I've seen some of even my good Christian friends use this. I've got to speak my truth. Well, when it comes to truth, there is no your truth and my truth. The word truth in the Greek literally means reality. Uh, ben Shapiro, not a believer, but uh, I love when he says, facts don't care about your feelings. Facts don't care about your feelings. Now, we, we should care about people's feelings, but not at the expense of the truth. Okay? Uh, Paul didn't speak his truth. He spoke Christ's truth. The gospel is not open to your opinion. It's not open to your interpretation. Uh, Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1 that holy men of God wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. He said, this is not a private interpretation. This is not my opinion. This is not what we got together, and this is what we think Jesus meant. This is the word of God that we receive from the Holy Spirit. And that w that's what makes it an authority. So this is the transforming message that we need to stand on. If we're going to persuade men, and if we're going to please God, we need to stand true to the transforming message. And then Paul moves past the message to how the message changed him and how the message transformed his life. So let's look for a moment at Paul's past, specifically his past self-centeredness. Remember, uh, Paul, before he became a believer, even for a short while after he became a believer, uh, his birth name was Saul. Saul the Pharisee. And so let's look at what Paul says about Saul, the man-pleasing Pharisee. Verses 13 and 14, For ye have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it, and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. Three boasts of the man-pleasing Saul. Number one, Saul's effective persecution of God's church. Saul was effectively persecuting God's church. 
Now understand, those who attack the church sometimes think they're doing God's bidding. Paul thought he was doing God's work as he attacked the church. Am I building the church? Or am I tearing the church down? How am I helping to build this church? Or am I tearing this church down? It's a very serious question. Because I have seen this. Now, I have, I, I'm, I'm new here. Okay, so I can speak about other churches that I've had th- this experience in. This is not a commentary on our, uh, our family here, but uh, I have seen this in other churches, men and women who absolutely were convinced that they were standing for God's truth, but they were bringing division. Some of them were bringing in false teaching. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Know ye not that you are the temple of God? Speaking to the church, we as a body of Christ are the New Testament temple. Not this building. This is just where the church meets. This is where we gather. And and as we saw a couple weeks ago, as we saw last week, by definition, the church needs to gather. It's it's in our DNA. It's in our name. The ecclesia. We need to gather. This is where we gather. We are the temple of God. The Spirit of God dwelleth in you, Paul says. If any man defile the temple of God, him God shall destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. Paul says, listen, some of you are self-deceived. You don't realize that what you're doing is actually bringing the church down. And in Corinth, we know it had to do with false teaching that people were bringing in. We, We know it had to do with divisions within the church. Well, I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. Paul says, uh, I'm, I'm using us as examples. I'm not going to use the names of the people you're actually saying. Not that there weren't people who were citing, you know, I'm of Paul, I'm of, of Apollos. But Paul says, listen, I'm using us as examples. But you know, you know there's other people's names. I follow this guy. I follow that guy. If you don't believe what that guy teaches, then you're not, you're not uh, in the club. You're not good enough. Paul, that was part of Paul's past as Saul, the Pharisee persecution of God's church so am I building the church or tearing it down number two not only his effective persecution but his exceptional progress in what he calls the Jews religion now Paul is a Jew but he's talking about the religion of the Jews after their rejection of their Messiah Jesus Christ once the Jews rejected Messiah they were no longer practicing biblical Judaism They had a whole new religion. And sadly, the majority of Jews today have a whole other religion. And uh, we need to be praying for Jews to come to Christ. We need to be focusing on getting the gospel to the Jewish people. But Paul was exceptional in his progress in that religion. And he was boastful about how he compared with his peers. And so a couple questions I would ask myself and I would encourage you to ask yourself. Number one, Do I define myself spiritually by how I compare with others? Am I looking at other people to try to gauge where I'm at with the Lord? Proverbs 26, verse 12, Seest thou a wise man, a man wise in his own conceit? Do you see a guy wise in his own conceit? There's more hope of a fool than of him. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, We dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but... They, measuring themselves by themselves, comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. And then verse 18, he says, For not he that commendeth himself is approved, but whom the Lord commendeth. 
Paul says, you got a bunch of people in your church at Corinth who are saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm a lot more, I, I come to church more often than that person, or I give more than that person, or I have a, uh, a better testimony than that person, so I must be okay with God because I'm better than they are. Well, you may not be better than they are, or you may be better than they are, but they're not the standard. Christ is the standard. And we don't define ourselves by how we compare with other people. Paul said that is foolish. Proverbs says uh, a fool has more hope than you. Remember in Ecclesiastes 5, we saw last week about those who worship and bring the sacrifice of fools and they don't even realize that they're doing evil because they're so convinced in their religiosity and in their spirituality that they don't recognize that they are actually Uh, worthless in their worship how do i define myself spiritually number two am i zealous for the truth of christ's righteousness or am i obsessed with my own self-righteousness am i all about jesus or am i all about how good i have gotten how much i have grown where i'm at spiritually isaiah 64 6 says we are all as an unclean thing and all our righteousness are as filthy rags and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Acts 13, 39, and by him all that believe are justified. By Jesus Christ all that believe are justified from all things, from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. There is no hope in self-righteousness, and self-righteousness keeps many, many people out of heaven. Jesus said there's going to be many people. Many. One of the scariest passages of Scripture in the whole Bible. Many people will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did all, my, all manner of things in your name. And Jesus is not going to say, yeah, I used to know you, but then you backslid. Yeah, I used to know you, but then I had to kick you out because you got so wicked. No, he's going to say, I never knew you. I never knew you. You were never part of my family. You were all about your own righteousness. You weren't trusting in my righteousness. We need to be obsessed with his righteousness. And that's why we praise him. And that's why we serve him. And our righteousness should come out of his righteousness. We should be a reflection of his righteousness because we have been granted legally his righteousness in heaven. So Saul's effect of persecution, Saul's exceptional progress. And then lastly, he says, Uh, Let me tell you about my extreme passion for the Jewish traditions. This is where some of us get snagged. Because we all have traditions. We all have habits. We all have things that we like. I've been guilty. I'm sure we've all been guilty of getting caught up in the way we do things because that's the way we've always done them. Passion for Jewish traditions. And so a question I need to ask myself repeatedly Do I define myself spiritually by a commitment to human traditions? Do I define where I'm at with Jesus by a commitment to man-made rules? In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15, uh, the Pharisees encounter some of Jesus' disciples. Then came to Jesus' scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? They wash not their hands when they eat bread. Now, lots of talk about washing your hands today. Hey, I'm all for washing your hands, all right? 
Gigi said to me yesterday, you know, one good thing that's come out of this lockdown stuff and this COVID is, is at least people are being more clean. At least the stores are a little cleaner, right? I still see people not washing their hands. Wash your hands, okay? It, that's just good hygiene, all right? But these guys weren't washing their hands according to the tradition. And he answered and said unto them, why do you also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? Then he goes down and he gives them some examples. And in verse 7 he says, Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah or Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Are we all about man-made rules? Is that how we gauge where we are spiritually? Now, there's nothing wrong with having traditions. There's nothing wrong with having an order. Paul says all things need to be done decently and in order. So we should have order. We should have a, a system. Uh, that's not what, what Paul's talking about. That's not what Jesus is talking about. That's when we begin to take uh, man-made rules and we begin to use them to define where we're at with God. Uh, that is deceptive, self-deceptive. And for the unsaved, it is self-damning. That was Paul's past, his self-centeredness. Let's look quickly at Paul's presence. Paul's present service, verses 15 through 16, he says, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Paul says, here's why I now please God. I have a mission. My mission is to preach to the heathen, to preach to the Gentiles, Here's why I do that. Here's why I'm driven to please God and persuade the Gentiles. He gives us three reasons. Number one, Paul realized he was born to preach the gospel. He was born to this. God revealed, hey, Paul, this is what you were born for. When you were in your mother's womb, I chose you to do this. Now, notice God has separated Paul from the womb for a mission. You need to find your mission. You need to find what God has called you to do, what God has designed you for. We talked a few months ago now about spiritual gifts, Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Peter chapter 4. I like Peter because Peter makes it real simple. Peter says, look, some of you have a serving gift, some of you have a speaking gift. Most of you know whether you are a speaker or a server. So start, at least start there and work through that and, and find your gift. Pray to the Holy Spirit Pray to God to show you by the leading of the Holy Spirit what your spiritual gift is if you're not sure. Find what God has called you from the womb to do. Now, just a very quick word on election. I don't have time to go into this, but some people take this verse when, when Paul says that, that God has set me aside from the womb. Uh, to, they, they think it means that, that Paul was chosen from the womb to be saved, that Paul didn't have any say in his own salvation. And I don't have time to get into this tonight. We will at some point, Lord willing, in the future. But let me just uh, challenge you to do what I have done, and that is to go uh, through the scriptures. This is real easy now because of our computers and our uh, concordances online, to just do a word search for the word elect or election in scripture. And what you will find if you look at the context of those passages is that election always emphasizes service, not salvation. Every time you see this idea of election, uh, in, ver in virtually every context, it's very clear, if you actually look at the verses around the word, that what God is talking about is you are chosen to do something, not to go somewhere. 
you are chosen to do something. It always emphasizes service, not salvation. We see it, first of all, in Jesus. The first time we see this word election in Scripture, it's in Isaiah. I, election is an Old Testament doctrine, not, not primarily, not first and foremost, I should say, a New Testament. It began in the Old Testament. And Jesus is the first one who is called the elect one. Jesus was chosen for a mission. Israel is called God's elect. They were chosen for a mission. Angels are referred to as elect. They are chosen for their mission that God sends them on. And the church is no different. We are chosen by God, yes, but we are chosen for mission. And every Christian has a mission. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So you have a mission. Find your mission. Ask God to show you. Number two, Paul says, I was indebted to God's grace. I was indebted to God's grace. See, why do I serve God? Because, because of his grace. I don't serve God to get anything. I serve God because he has given everything. But if I believe that, if I'm saved by grace, if I understand that, then as Paul says in Romans chapter 6, you need to yield yourselves to God because you are under grace. You're not under law. You're under grace. So yield yourselves to God. Be a slave to God. Be God's servant. If you really understand grace, you will understand that God doesn't owe you anything. You owe him everything. And so yield yourselves to God. And then thirdly, Paul was given a special revelation of the resurrected son. Now, this was true of all the apostles. Jesus said to them in John chapter 15, the other 11, uh, after Judas had betrayed, Jesus said, look, you didn't choose me. I chose you. I chose you to bear fruit. I chose you for mission. I chose you to, to do something, to go out and be my witnesses. Paul is the same way. God revealed his son to Paul, actually revealed him to Saul when he was still Saul, so that he could reveal Christ in Paul to us, to us today. We see Christ at work in Paul through the message of Paul, through the work of the Holy Spirit, producing Christ in Paul so that we can learn about Christ from Paul. Now, it's interesting, again, I don't have time to go into this, but I would just note um, Acts 22, verse 16, uh, and challenge you to read that. It's, it's really interesting. Paul's testimony is given to us three times in the book of Acts. Once the historical event, once as Paul's testimony to the Jews, once as Paul's testimony to Gentiles. And in his testimony to the Jews in Acts chapter 22, verse 16, Paul, Paul says that it was after three days of prayer, after he met Christ on the road to Damascus, and he spent three days in prayer, and he was healed, then... He called upon the name of the Lord, and he had his sins washed away, and he followed the Lord in believer's baptism. That happened not on the road to Damascus, but uh, actually three days later, and we'll talk more about that when we talk about the new covenant as we get farther into this book. That's just a little uh, spoiler alert, but here's the conclusion as we close tonight. Uh, verse 17 Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia, returned again unto Damascus. You say, what is Paul saying here? Paul's saying, look, I was done with man's approval. I was done. No more living to please people. I wasn't even seeking validation even from the apostles. When I encountered Jesus Christ, when I gave my life to Christ, when I understood what God had created me to be, what God had called me to do, the mission that God had entrusted to me, I wasn't looking for validation anymore. I wasn't going to try to compare myself. I wasn't going to try to 
to, to earn favor with the other apostles or to submit myself to the other apostles. God gave me a mission. I'm not going to be focused anymore on getting my validation from what other people think of me. That is hard to do. That's hard to do. Easy to say, oh, I don't care what people think about me. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. I don't want to care what other people think about me, but I do. I do. But Paul was done. Instead, he dedicated himself to serve the one who had given him the mission. And so as we close, I have to challenge myself and I challenge you. Whose approval are you going to live for? Whose approval are you going to live for? Are you going to live to please the Father? Is that going to be your, your, your purpose in life? I want my Heavenly Father to be proud of me. I want Him to be proud of how I live. And I want to find what He's called me to do and what He's equipped me to do. And I want to do that with all my heart for the glory of Jesus Christ. Whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord, not unto men. Or am I going to live to please people? It's a choice we all have to make every day. Let's pray. Father, may we all recognize the great love that you have for us, the love you have proven and demonstrated in sending Christ to die for our sins and raising him from the dead. God, I know that most, if not all of us here tonight, have trusted in you. We've repented of our sins. We've been forgiven. We have been adopted into your family. God, may we never more live to please other people and submit the truth to man's approval but live, God, for your approval and for your praise. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. We do want to extend an invitation to you now. Would you stand as we close? If you have a need, the altar is open. If you've never trusted in Christ, our deacons are here. would love to share with you. Maybe you just want to come pray. Maybe you have a decision you need to make there where you're standing. Let's just sing a couple verses. We won't sing all of these, but let's just sing a couple verses of Amazing Grace as we close. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found. Was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed through many dangers toils and snares I
just go to him in prayer as we close. Father, we thank you so much for the grace you poured out on us on the cross, for the grace you poured out on us, God, when you saved us, for the grace you pour out on us every day that we live as your children. God, I pray that all of us would be stirred by your spirit in our hearts and be motivated, God, in response to your grace to recognize just how much you've forgiven us, just how amazing your grace really is. And God, to seek to serve and please you in all that we do because of your amazing love for us. May we lift up the name of your son. May we live in obedience to him and model him to others and share the truth of the gospel with those in our lives that have not met him. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. What another great message from Pastor DJ. I hope this has found you well and has made an impact on your life in the name of Jesus. If it has, please give us a five-star rating on whatever platform you listen on and share it with a friend so others might be encouraged as well. If you have never accepted Christ as your Savior and would like to know how, give one of our pastors a call at 301-724-5876. We would love nothing more than to hear from you. We hope to see you soon, and until next time, stay faithful. Thank you.